Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. everyone. Welcome to the newest edition of Strictly VC's weekly podcast, thrown together with love and bailing wire every Friday afternoon. Today's date is August 28th. Our beloved interns return to school remotely this week. They're both in middle school right now. And frighteningly, they usually find us around noon to let us know they're done with their virtual school. Noon, also known as lunchtime. This is going to be a long fall, listeners. But moving on, there was lots of news per the usual. We are just going to zip through a few of the stories that are probably most relevant to those of you in the startup ecosystem before jumping into our interview with longtime IPO expert Liz Beyer of Class 5 Group, who's helping her clients right now figure out the best way to go public while the getting is still good. Alex, maybe start us off with Palantir. Thanks, Connie. This past Tuesday, Palantir, which weaves together data streams to monitor individuals for the U.S. government and corporate clients, released its IPO prospectus. From previous news reports, we already knew that the 17-year-old startup has never turned a profit and that its business is heavily dependent on government contracts. And we also knew that the company was eccentric. Until just last year, CEO Alex Karp resisted hiring salespeople because he felt their presence would sully the work of Palantir's engineers. This is not a science. We are a colony of artists, Karp told the journal in 2018. Still, it was a bit of a shock for even the most jaded Palantir watchers to see the company's peccadilloes spelled out in the cold, dry language of an S-1. Consider Karp's letter to investors that serves as the document's introduction. In it, He insinuates that other American tech companies are not as patriotic as Palantir, particularly if they choose to work with China. Our software is used by the United States and its allies in Europe and around the world, Karp wrote. Some companies work with the United States as well as its adversaries. We do not. We believe that our government and commercial customers value this clarity. At another point, Karp states, Our software is used to target terrorists and to keep soldiers safe. We have chosen sides, and we know that our partners value our commitment. Finally, he writes that although Palantir was founded in Silicon Valley, quote, we seem to share fewer and fewer of the technology sector's values and commitments. This anti-tech rhetoric perhaps explains why Palantir is moving its headquarters to Denver from Palo Alto, where it once controlled 10 to 15 percent of the city's entire commercial inventory. Weirder still were disclosures in the S-1 about the executive team's pay packages. Last year, Alex Karp was paid $12 million, including $1.46 million for personal security services and $1.25 million for personal travel expenses. Meanwhile, the company's president, Stephen Cohen, earned $16 million in salary, a pittance compared to its COO, Shyam Sankar, whose compensation was $25 million. Did we mention that Palantir has been losing money for 17 years? Palantir's S-1 makes clear that public investors will probably never be able to uproot its management. According to TechCrunch, Palantir's three-class voting structure ensures that founders will maintain 49.99999% control in perpetuity. But even so, this kind of information should make investors interested in Palantir's direct listing think twice. So as Alex mentioned, Palantir is planning to go public through a direct listing. Now, owing to a development this week, that means something different than it did just a week ago. 
Up until now, as you might know, direct listings were a way for companies to allow existing shareholders to sell stock to public investors. It was basically just a company shifting itself from private to public with the help of investment bankers who sort of talked to those private shareholders in advance to ensure that not everybody is going to dump their shares at the same time on day one and tank the share price in the process. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but that's the gist. In any case, direct listings were very much buzzed about last year after Slack and Spotify both used them to begin trading publicly. We even hosted the head of Morgan Stanley's tech banking practice, Michael Grimes, at a Strictly VC event toward the end of last year to explain why these things make sense. Still, they really were only suitable for companies that didn't need to raise money at the IPO because companies weren't actually issuing new shares and so not raising any money from their direct listings. That just changed. After a number of proposals that it had to go back and revise, the New York Stock Exchange on Wednesday or Thursday won the approval from regulators to allow companies that choose direct listings to also issue new shares through them. Theoretically, this means that the existing shareholders get to liquidate their holdings immediately, but it's also a fundraising event for the company. It'll be interesting to see if this dampens enthusiasm for SPACs, or special purpose acquisition companies, which we talked about last week. SPACs are another way for companies to get public in a way that's easy compared with a traditional IPO, and they are coming together all over the place. According to the financial market data company Refinitiv, there have already been 67 SPAC offerings around the world this year that have raised a record $23.9 billion. That's one-fifth of the total funds raised through IPOs, and there are a bunch of these things in the pipeline. Most of these are in the U.S., by the way. 61 of the 67 SPACs closed so far are U.S. listed. I think the immediate expectation is that direct listings will now cause that SPAC activity to cool, but we'll see. More on this in our upcoming conversation with Liz Beyer. To round things out, just a few interesting end-of-week notes. Pinterest reportedly just terminated its massive 490,000-square-foot lease at San Francisco's unbuilt 88 Bluxom project and agreed to a $90 million breakup fee to get out of this deal. Obviously, Pinterest does not represent the entirety of the tech industry, but it's certainly an interesting data point and one that I'm sure will have the commercial real estate industry talking this weekend. At an earlier event today, Elon Musk revealed more details about his mysterious neuroscience company Neuralink and its plans to connect computers to human Human brains. How? Musk showed off several pigs that had prototypes of the neural links implanted in their head and machinery that was tracking those pigs' brain activity in real time. He also revealed that the FDA has awarded Neuralink with breakthrough device authorization, which should help hasten its research on a medical device. As reported in Recode, the company's short-term goal is to build a device that can help people with specific health conditions like depression and paralysis. Longer term, it wants to develop a device with the power to handle lots of data that can be inserted in a relatively simple surgery. Why? So humans can keep pace with advancements in artificial intelligence. I just hope I'm dead by the time all this comes to fruition. Last but not least, the social platform TikTok dominated the news cycle this week. First, on Monday, TikTok sued the U.S. government, accusing the Trump administration of depriving it of due process when Donald Trump used his emergency economic powers to try and block the app from operating in the country. It's not surprising. It's also not straightforward, and I don't think anyone really knows whether TikTok could win in a lawsuit against Trump. In the meantime, it's smart to keep the plate spinning. TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is in the thick of negotiating with potential purchasers that have every reason to think it will have to sell off TikTok 
conducts business in the U.S., and that is a lousy bargaining position. Who are those potential purchasers? Well, the list gets longer by the day. Early bidder Microsoft has now teamed up with Walmart to acquire the short-form video app. Meanwhile, Oracle is reportedly working with General Atlantic and Sequoia Capital on a separate bid. General Atlantic and Sequoia are investors in TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, and according to the Wall Street Journal, they grew concerned that they wouldn't have a place in a Microsoft deal, so they were looking for another tech partner to give them a piece of the action. These are the front runners, but there are lots of other names that are reportedly putting something together. Shortly before sitting down to this podcast, Bloomberg reported that TikTok rival Triller and Centrisis, a London-based investment firm, are the latest suitors looking to buy TikTok's U.S. business with a $20 billion bid. Asked about this, a TikTok spokesperson reportedly asked, what's Triller? While another spokesperson for TikTok called the deal preposterous. Triller subsequently said the reason TikTok doesn't know about the offer is that it went above their heads and approached ByteDance directly. Zing. Who knows? Who cares? Well, probably not Kevin Mayer, the long-term Disney exec who was appointed TikTok's CEO in June. He abruptly resigned on Wednesday, saying that owing to the political turmoil surrounding the company, the job he thought he was taking has changed quite a bit. And now for our interview with Liz Beyer of Class 5 Group on the crazy state of the IPO market right now. But first, a word from our sponsor. Stop subjecting your LPs to the same painful and costly fund subscription experience. Andowin's technology reimagines the LP experience so you can raise more capital faster. Make fundraising a center of excellence for your fund. Visit anduintransact.com. Liz Beyer is the founder and managing partner of the Class 5 Group, a consulting firm that advises companies on IPOs and other market strategies. Previously, she was the director of business optimization for Google, where she was one of the chief architects of the company's 2004 IPO. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's delightful. I always love talking to you, and I know that you've been especially busy lately. We were just talking before we hit record and you were telling me that you are involved in a number of companies. How many? I I know you you can only scale so much. Yeah, this is a particularly interesting year. I will generally work with only four companies during a year. There were a number of companies that were thinking they would launch their offerings publicly back in the spring. And then of course, COVID hit and they shut that down. With the strength of the market, They've come roaring back. So at the moment, I happen to be working with companies that we thought would be out in the spring and companies that all along had intended to be out in the fall. It's been a super busy week, frankly, with at least four clients announcing publicly their intent to to actually go public, presumably sometime in the next six weeks or so. Right, right, right. So as you mentioned, a lot of these companies filed confidentially ahead of time, but so many made clear their plans this week. Five on Monday alone, Asana, Unity, Sumo Logic, Snowflake, JFrog. I have to ask, why right now? Surely this wasn't just coincidence. Not coincidence at all. The SEC regulations say that you must make your documents publicly available to anyone at least 15 days before you begin a roadshow. What was 15 days from Monday? That would be the Tuesday after Labor Day. Historically, investors generally ease up a bit in the 
back half of August. And so you almost never see companies going public after, say, the 15th of August. But just with the school year, when we used to have a normal school year, in September, things come roaring back. The market has been so strong. Investors have shown so much enthusiasm for new issues. And who's kidding who? There's a whole bunch of uncertainty about what happens as we round out the fourth quarter. But I think a number of companies looked at this September and said, this might be a very good time to venture into the public markets. What do we have to do to make that happen? Let's be sure we're ready to flip public by mid-August. That's why Monday was Monday. Right. So I think what's interesting and has been you know, noted widely is that none of the companies that filed the S-1s that I just mentioned on Monday were profitable. And three of them have never posted an annual profit in all of their years of existence, Asana, JFrog, and Unity. I guess in the cases of Asana and F- Snowflake, their losses are growing. How long has this been acceptable? Uh, maybe the question is like, when was the last time a major tech company actually was profitable when it went out? Ooh, great question. I know the trade desk was pretty darn profitable when it went out in 2016. Surely there have been others since then. But I would have to go back and look at the record to answer that question. Um, (laughs) Will.com had been profitable, but then chose to uh, accelerate spending to grow prior to going. But that's another one where I think you could look at the S1 and say, oh, look, they were profitable that quarter. Investors have shown that they care less about current profitability and more about the opportunity ahead. It's a risk reward thing, right? Look, go back to 2000 when you and I were both four or was it five? Anyway, there were a bunch of companies that not only weren't profitable, but didn't have enough of a business to be able to figure out whether they would ever be profitable or not. Currently, the companies going generally are saying, look, this is an opportunity to spend money to grow. Mm -hmm. And maybe it, it takes money to win over customers. But if we spend that now, in theory, at least, you reap what you sow. Today's planting should yield a nice harvest down the road. And so I think that's more what investors are looking at. I don't mean to go too deep into the weeds, but one of the measures that investors look at very closely with software companies is something called LTV to CAC. And what that really means is the long-term value of a customer divided by the cost to acquire that customer. So let's say we have to spend five bucks up front to get that customer. And this year, I'm going to be minus five bucks. But maybe three years from now, that customer is going to pay me 15. And that's what I care about. (laughs) So it sounds like the days of seven consecutive quarters of revenue growth are over for a tech IPO as a guideline to take a company public. You were talking about LTV to CAC. Is there a metric that investors are looking at like 5x LTV to CAC? Or is there some shorthand that people are using now to get a quick sense of whether or not a company is ready to go public? Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if we had a, a solid answer to that question? The answer is no. The answer is each company preparing to enter the public markets is going to have a different story. And the key is for the management team, A, to show that the business model is making progress. That does not mean that it is currently profitable, but that things are getting better. And secondly, to convince investors how huge the opportunity is and that with time and with incremental capital raised in the IPO, they can invest those funds to realize the profitability. There's no standard answer. It used to be you had to have $10 million in trailing 12-month revenue. Not anymore. It very much depends on the industry and the company and, again, how successful management can be in convincing potential investors of the opportunity. Well, this is maybe a stupid question, but Asana and Unity are a little older than Snowflake, and 
so or as it happens, are showing fewer signs of that hypergrowth. Should that concern public market investors? Yeah, I think you have to to look at every company and the industry that, in which they're operating quite separately. So people who might be really interested in one of these businesses might be a little less familiar or less enthusiastic about another. But I don't think most investors will look at A or B and say, gee, I'm going to invest in A because it's growing fast, but I don't want to invest in B because it's growing more slowly. You kind of have to look at each one individually and look at the economics of their business, at least from my days as an institutional investor. You look at each one to try to figure out what the promise is. Unless they're in the exact same industry and competing, you don't compare one to the next. Sure. Let's also, Asana is orchestrating a, a direct listing, which is, for listeners who don't know, a, a maneuver wherein companies essentially move all of their stock from the private markets to public ones in, in one fell swoop. There have only been two of these so far, Slack and Spotify, I think, despite a whole lot of buildup around them. Why is Asana choosing a direct listing? And do you think we will see more of these? Yeah, I'm not going to answer for Asana. They would have to answer themselves. Hmm. But I will point out that Asana is a special case because in the case of Slack and Spotify, the early investors who were very excited about the direct listing, in part because they could sell their positions right away, really had limited ongoing affiliation with the company. Look at the record companies in Spotify. They rode that thing up. They watched where it went and they said, great, it's going public. We're going to transfer our ownership to the public, put the money in our pockets and go on our merry way. In the case of Asana, it's quite different because the largest investor is also very involved on a day-to-day basis. So it's kind of a special case. It's a little bit different. Now I got to go back to your original question, which is why do companies choose them? There's lots of answers there. And direct listings really were the new shiny object that everyone was chasing. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about them. There are folks, particularly those who are early investors who love them. Let me jump back a minute. 2012, a new legislation called passed called the Jobs Act. Prior to the JOBS Act, companies had to file financial information publicly as soon as they hit 500 shareholders. And many companies, including Google and Facebook, uh, took that obligation to say, you know what, we got to put our numbers out there. Let's go public. And it kind of worked out pretty well for public investors because they were able to invest in these rapidly growing companies when they were still on just the steepest part of their growth curve. 2012, the Jobs Act comes along, the 500 shareholder rule goes away in no part because of intense lobbying by private investors, by Mm -hmm. venture funds. Public no longer has the opportunity to invest at that early stage with some companies, not with others. There's certainly no rules, but 500 shareholder rule goes away. Companies start staying private much longer. Let's look at Blue Apron as an example. Stayed private so long that the growth curve started to flatten. Mm-hmm. At that point, the private investors to some degree wanted to flip their shares to public investors, but they were still stuck holding on to those shares for another 180 days. With a direct listing with no lockup, those private investors now can say, we've had a good ride let's head on out of here. And so that's part of the reason, I'm being a little unfair, but that's part of the reason that you hear those who've historically been private investors being so excited about them. Bill Gurley talks obviously about a company's leaving too much money on the table uh, in a traditional IPO, but I'm sure the fact that they can get liquidity right away is also very compelling. What I think is interesting is Palantir, for example, the data analytics company, that's also reportedly planning on a direct listing, though it will 
institute a lockup period, which we did not see with Spotify and Slack. Do you think that should make investors nervous? Or do you think more companies would consider direct listings if they could be certain that not everyone dumps their shares on day one? Yeah, let's not talk about any company in particular. All right, let's talk about a theoretical company that would (laughs) institute a direct lockup in a direct listing scenario. Yeah, so here's why lockups used to exist. They used to exist uh, for exactly the reason you just described. There's always the belief that current shareholders, shareholders who own stock in the private market, know more about what's going on than people who are just buying it for the first time. And so the lockup used to exist to say to incoming public shareholders, hey, you guys, we, the people who may have inside information, I don't mean to make an SEC judgment there, we're in this with you. We're sticking here together. So don't be worried. This is not a transfer of wealth from public investors into the pockets of private investors, we're all in this together. The lockup structure, that's what it's meant to do. It kind of has some basic supply and demand flaws in that if there's a whole lot of stock that is suddenly going to become available to be traded for the first time 180 days after the IPO, hey, supply and demand. There's lots of folks who who will, I hate the word play, but they will play that opportunity by saying lots of stock coming loose tomorrow, stock's going down, investors would try to manipulate around the release of all the new shares. And it didn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense to have all insider shares locked up for 180 days. Every so often, now you'll see a company that will say, what? Forget the 180-day thing. If our stock is up X percent after 100 days, why not let insiders let off a little steam and sell I don't know, 20% of their stock if, at day 90, if the stock is up more than 30%. So everyone has benefited. And there's incremental liquidity in the market, which also definitely helps. Are you saying that yeah. the lockup is tied to market conditions and they've made it much more conditional than it was in the past? It's no longer, say, a flat 180 days, but it's you know tied to specific market events? Specific stock performance. In some cases. In other cases, no. In other cases, it's just tied to time, frankly. But the jumping back to direct listings for a second, the from my perspective, the biggest advantage of Slack and Spotify is that it made everyone consider status quo on offerings. And it, and way back when Google went public in 04, we had a very unusual lockup release. And people to some degree, went ballistic because it wasn't 180 days. The thinking has evolved and the catalyst may have been the direct listings to say, wait a minute, why don't we devise a lockup structure that is good for everyone, that's good for the older shareholders, that's good for new buyers who are looking to be able to add to their positions. It's helped everyone. And, and, And part of the reason it helps buyers, by the way, is that sometimes when companies go public, they go with, let's call it eight, 10% of their outstanding shares. And the biggest investors who are now running billions of dollars can't buy enough stock to be able to have any impact on their portfolio performance. So they want access to more stock and they would like that within the 180 days as opposed to having to wait six months. So at this point, there's an awful lot of forces saying, what if we let a little more stock eke its way into the market in a more gradual fashion as opposed to a lump at 180 days? Right, right. No, make complete sense. Liz, another big trend, of course, is SPACs, these special purpose vehicles that everyone and their mother seems to be raising. (laughs) We talked with Kevin Hartz, the co-founder of Eventbrite, about his SPAC last week. These blank check companies promise that they will find a great target, reverse merge with them, and so make 
publicly traded companies in a re- relatively frictionless way. They've been around for 25 years. They don't have a great reputation. A lot of smart people like Kevin Hartz uh, are doing these. I just saw today Ribbit Capital, which is a venture fund that's focused on fintech startups, is putting together a $350 million SPAC. A former COO of Goldman, Gary Cohn, is putting together a SPAC. They all insist that SPACs make more sense right now. What do you think? One, absolutely right. SPACs had a lousy reputation historically because they were for companies that frankly couldn't deal with the public market. So thing one, conditions are so strong in the market right now. I think there are a number of companies that want to, oh, I'll pull a new cliche, make hay while the sun shines. Mm -hmm. Let's get out. Two, there are some bigger, stronger companies that have said, we don't need the fuss of a traditional IPO. SPACs have one big advantage over direct listings. In a direct listing, companies do not raise any money for their own treasury. They let people who previously owned the stock transfer their ownership from private owners to public owners. And the company itself writes a big honking check for the fees, but it makes no money. With a SPAC, that same company actually merges into a shell corporation that does have a lot of money in the treasury. So one of the reasons historically companies went public was to raise money to grow their businesses. SPACs are much more helpful on that front than a direct listing is. So they're kind of for different companies. To some extent, direct listings are for bigger, older companies that don't need any money. And SPACs are quite the opposite. We kind of would like to get a move on. And we don't care about the things that come along with a traditional IPO, say like immediate Wall Street research coverage. Let's just go now. There's debate and there haven't really been enough of them merged through yet about whether they're really much quicker than a traditional IPO or not by the time you've tied all the bows and buttoned all the buttons. But there's a thought that they are quicker. They certainly aren't less expensive. Generally, there's always outliers, but given some of the incremental costs. But you mentioned the ribbit SPAC, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting because the terms are significantly more favorable to the companies to be acquired than some of the SPACs that we saw going out just a month ago. Yes, I saw that. I think that's terrific. One thing that I also thought was interesting is I had talked to some bankers and attorneys last week, and they were explaining to me that a lot of the SPACs acquire targets that are two to four times the size of the SPACs themselves. And so they tack on a pipe deal. Bill Gurley, in a follow-up piece to mine this weekend, said he doesn't really think much of that pipe piece of the transaction, that it's kind of just giving an advantage to the same institutional investors who've always had a privileged place in these offerings. They get more information. They know what the deal looks like ahead of retail investors. I'm just wondering, do you have any thoughts on the SPAC plus the pipe? It's expensive. It's. I think the pipe was sold to many of these companies as a sweetener. Mm -hmm. Hey, don't go public where you could raise X gazillion dollars. That's an example where you can raise a couple hundred million dollars. Instead, why not raise it using a pipe and then you'll merge with our SPAC. So you'll have a lot of money in the bank and you can grow from there. It's expensive, I guess, is the answer, but it is a way to put money in the treasury. One of the things about some of the SPACs is that they just aren't quite ready yet to go public. They don't have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed in terms of the forecasts or all the internal systems. And yeah, you raise money from a smaller number of people, they will have more information. The fact that some companies go public and leave money on the table is being dealt with as if it is a black and white situation. Oh, those morons. They 
left 60% on the table Mm -hmm. or more in some cases. And it's so much more nuanced than that. It's a little pathetic that the conversation has evolved the way it has. I I don't know if you want to go down that path. I I absolutely do, because I feel like that is the narrative that everybody's buying into. Traditional IPOs are terrible. So here is this spate of new ways to get public. So in defense of the traditional IPO, what are people misunderstanding? Okay, several things. (laughs) One, people are complaining about lockups with traditional IPOs, and people are complaining about stock prices jumping. Well, that's generally in the hands of management. They can work with their bankers to have more interesting lockups, as we're now seeing. And two, and now here I am talking my own book a little bit, but you don't want to have a stock pop immediately, then you do a hybrid auction and you understand exactly what the pricing curve is at exactly which prices and you choose your price from there. It isn't just that bankers come in and say, we think you're worth 40, you're going to sell at 20, have at it. Management has a say there. And I was not involved in the Zoom IPO, but this is a good one to use. The stock jumped up dramatically. Management knew the stock was going to jump dramatically, But when management agrees to a specific stock price for the IPO, they are implicitly endorsing the fact that they believe their fundamentals, how the business is expected to grow, can support that price. And just because the market is temporarily willing to pay something astronomical, and in many cases, people who really don't understand the fundamentals, management doesn't want to be on the hook. If everybody in that business is selling for 20 times next year's revenue and the market is willing to pay a specific company 40 times next year's revenue at the time of the IPO, and then three months later, the company comes out with a forecast that doesn't match crazy expectations suggesting it will grow twice as fast as anybody else in its industry, management has to live with that for a very long time. So there are often occasions where the management team says, I understand I can sell for a lot more, but I don't want to because I want investors to have faith in my ability to understand what is rational, even if for a short period of time, they're willing to throw caution to the wind and pay anything. And there's another example of that, which is Bill.com. Bill.com went public in December, and the management team knew that demand dramatically outstripped supply and that they could have priced that deal significantly higher. And they didn't want to because they didn't want to message anything unusual to Wall Street. So they go public, the stock jumps up. The stock stays up. COVID comes along. And when they reported their first quarter after being public, it turns out that business is accelerating faster than expected, keeps going up. Management sells a much larger percentage of the company four months later at a much higher price. But they had previously established a good rapport and trust with investors with that lower priced IPO such that they were able to raise so much more money and take less dilution four months later. So who's to say they made a mistake giving the public pension funds a little bit of a jump in the early months. It really worked out for them subsequently. So having a strong strategy towards your secondary is really important, it sounds like. Yes. Would that I could be as succinct as you just were. Yes. Liz, could we just take a step back? I'm curious about how you work with companies. Do you help in selecting bankers? Do you help in crafting the story? Do you message institutional investors? What exactly is your role, just so that our listeners can understand that? 
So having been an institutional investor and having been an investment banker and having been a project manager for a big IPO, and then frankly, having been on the board of a company as it went through its IPO, I was lucky enough to see the process from a bunch of different perspectives. And there's so much nuance in whichever structure you choose. There's a lot of nuance in how you go public. And management teams understand semiconductors or Eventbrite's business or Palantir's business or whatever it is, but they don't know all the nuances of the IPO process. The analogy I make for everyone is I'm the caddy, right? The management team are the golfers. They're the stars of this show, but I've played the course a whole lot of times and I can tell them what will happen in different circumstances, depending on what decisions they make. So to directly answer your question, I won't tell them what bankers to pick, but I will tell them how to evaluate the different bankers who may be showing interest. I will help them figure out how to build a syndicate of banks to get the most out of everyone and how to compensate those bankers. I will help them translate their story from the way they've told it to private investors to how they will now have to tell it for public investors because there really is a difference. So literally will help them craft their SEC document. I am not a lawyer. I am not an accountant, and nobody wants me to do the graphic design for their roadshow. <laughs> but I will help them understand how investors will assess them and how to tell their story. And I will try to poke holes in the story before they meet with investors. I like to be bad cop, or as I joke with them, I like to be the investor from hell before they go out and meet the real investors. So they're prepared for what's coming. Are you helping people put together these initial specs? Would a Ribbit Capital be a, a customer of yours? No, much more likely I will be hired by the company being acquired. And that's because they aren't ready to be public yet. And so we have to go from zero to 65 in a quick period of time. Let's work on the model. Let's work on the messaging. Let's work on setting up an investor relations function, all of those sorts of things. So Ribbit doesn't need me, but the company's being acquired. And are you talking with more companies that are maybe being approached? Again, there have been so many SPACs that have been raised. It's astonishing. And it this trend. So, and in sight, I'm just wondering if a lot of people are getting tapped on the shoulder right now to say, hey, what do you think about slipping into my shell company? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and companies that were purely considering an IPO are in some cases looking at these SPACs. And again, there's trade-offs and, and each SPAC is sponsored differently. But the short answer to your question is yes, there are folks considering SPACs. There are folks who were not considering SPACs six weeks ago who are getting tapped on the shoulder now and are trying to evaluate the specific terms and the specific trade-offs of the potential merger partner slash acquirer. We talked to Kevin Hartz last week, and he is trying to, quote unquote, legitimize the SPAC space. He believes there's an opportunity for quality investors to come into the space to change the perception of SPACs. Do you see VC funds launching SPAC practices and and changing the reputation of this kind of financial vehicle? Yeah, hats off to Kevin for everything he's done, but he's been beaten to that punch. Dragoneer raised a big SPAC. Bill Ackman raised a big SPAC. There are some serious investors who have already taken the machete through that jungle and and cleared the path. (laughs) One of the things that's happened over the last couple of years, and again, this does in some ways go back to the Jobs Act, is investors that had previously only invested in public companies started doing all the late stage rounds and investing in private companies. Mm -hmm. Well, that stepped on the toes of some of the VC firms a little bit because some of these public investors were fairly enormous and could write huge checks. Now we see the reverse happening. Now you see the VC companies say, wait a minute, 
we didn't get to keep all the acceleration well private because now we had to share with those pesky public investors or <laughs> crossover investors. Right. So, okay, now let's see if we can't create a vehicle that will let us be involved with the public companies too. So, uh, yes, I would expect that to happen. I'm curious about institutions like Stanford okay. and the LPs that are investing in venture funds. They've got their assets allocated in a certain way. And if they're investing in venture funds and the venture funds are now also becoming more interested in public markets, I just wonder if that kind of screws things up for them. Uh, yes and no, because it'll be mm -hmm. different funds. Mm -hmm. So you don't invest in XYZ venture firm, you invest in fund six. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And fund six is all private and maybe they choose to pass on the public fund. So I, I think it will cause thinking. And I think you're, you nailed it. There will definitely be asset allocation issues, but I just think it means the the Stanford's or the other academic institutions will just have to tweak their models because now they have more investing options. You mentioned Sequoia's track record. I was talking to one of the managing directors, Roloff Botha, a few days ago, and he was talking about Sequoia's public equities fund and the fact that it loves getting involved in companies that they've funded from the sometimes the seed stage through the public market. Sometimes they go ahead and buy it more at the IPO. I know that's not a new trend, and this is maybe a field, but I saw that Google is investing $100 million in a telemedicine firm called Amwell at its IPO. I'm just wondering if we're going to see more financing events at the IPO from venture firms and companies, and if so, why, and if not, why not? Yeah, and I'm gonna gonna answer your question with a question. The market is so hot, and so many <laughs> IPOs have done so extraordinarily well so quickly that clearly we see either big public funds or big private funds saying, "Hey, can we put 100 million dollars into your IPO right before the IPO actually happens?" And in part, that's because they want to get that early jump. If it were to cool at some point, my hunch is we will see uh, fewer folks raising their hands saying, oh, please let me in now with a big hunt. So that's what we're seeing now is partially a function of how hot the IPO market has been of late. Part two is that what we talked about before, it's sometimes hard on an IPO for a bigger fund to be able to get ownership of enough stock to be able to move the needle on its overall performance. So by saying to the management of a private company up front, hey, I want to support you from the get-go, please can I buy $100 million of your stock? It's both a nice vote of confidence for the company going public if it needs that extra pat on the back. And it's a way for institutional investors, private or public, to get a big enough position right from the start to have that stock move the needle on their overall performance. Are they typically locked up? It depends. <laughs> sometimes yes, sometimes no. And and by the way, it's a great question because I believe Snap went public with some large investors that said, you can have a particularly large allocation of our stock from the start, but you have to hold it for some period of time. And I think it was a year, but I may be wrong about that. That's a challenge because it's great to get that big block of stock, but these public investors have a fiduciary obligation to make the right decision by their investors, by all the people who own shares of the fund. And SNAP stumbled out of the gate and missed its quarters and the stock tanked. And kind of a bummer for, for those institutions who had signed up and said, no, we're locked in, we can't sell it. So the short answer to your question is, in some cases, they're locked up, in some cases, they're not. Great. Well, Liz, again, we've kept you for too long, but I always love talking to you. I so appreciate you making time for this. And uh, I'm sure we will be talking, I hope, a lot this fall as, as things evolve and we move closer to the election. 
I'm such a fan of your newsletter and of everything you write. And so it's just been a privilege to be able to talk to you both on all of this. And I look forward to continuing conversations as as it's never dull out there. Take care, Liz. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Take care. Several hours after talking with Bayer, the New York Stock Exchange won the approval from regulators to allow companies that choose direct listings to also issue new shares. We talked with Bayer about the development afterward in an email exchange, to which she said, I have no horse in the hunt. I just see this as a solution desperately in search of an actual problem. Thanks, everybody. And don't forget to sign up for the newsletter at strictlyvc.com. And also, if you feel like doing us a solid, please rate our podcast. Unless you're going to give us a one, in which case, don't rate, don't rate our podcast. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Mm-hmm.